Hello, everyone, and welcome to another fun-filled episode of RaptureCast. I'm Adam, he's Will, and we're going to talk about the finale of The Leftovers. I live here now. So, Will, uh, what did you think of the finale? I was blown away. Uh, this is this is such a great episode. This is such a great end to season two, um, and potentially, but probably not the show. Um, and... I, I was really pleased. I mean, uh, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you know what our predictions were last week for the episode, and uh, some we were we were close, some we were pretty far off, and uh, I think for the majority of the episode, uh, it kept me on my toes uh, uh, thematically. I really wasn't sure where it was going at any given point, um, and yeah, it, it kept me guessing, and and uh, I think that this episode delivered. Uh, it had uh, a lot of the emotional satisfaction that we got in the first season that wasn't as much uh, wasn't as much here in the second season, um, specifically the, the the karaoke scene um, that I, I feel was definitely on par with some of the some of the strongest uh, emotional scenes in the first season. So I was really, really, really happy with it. I, I don't think I'd change anything about it. I'm going to uh, save the listeners some time and just say I 100 percent agree. With everything you just said there. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the people behind the scenes on the first episode before we actually get into the episode itself. Um, it was directed by Mimi Letter. Her uh, her work now, it kind of speaks for itself. She's done work on A Most Powerful Adversary, A Matter of Geography, Axis Mundi, Prodigal Sun Returns, Solace for Tired Feet, and Gladys. It was written by Tom Perota and Damon Lindelof. Yeah, so she the, did uh, the three best episodes in season one which is huge, I think. Well, I mean, I guess um, uh, Three Boats and a Helicopter is up there too, but she did yeah, that three was... of the best episodes in season one. Yeah, I think Two Boats and a Helicopter, uh, we've talked about before, I think that's one of my favorite in season one. Mm-hmm. But she did do, she has done a lot of great work. Uh, so it was hard written to beat by, Prodigal Son. It is, it is hard to beat Prodigal Son. I think this episode uh, comes close to it. Mm-hmm. But agreed, uh, such a great, such a great episode. Uh, written by Perota and Lindelof. Naturally, uh, the co-creators uh, want to kind of finish it off. So nothing surprising there. Um, before we get into the show itself, let's actually talk about uh, Lindelof did an interview. He did a lot of interviews this week, actually. The one we're going to talk about is the one he did with Hitflix, just because that's the one I found first. We will uh, post a link to this interview in the show notes, so if uh, you at home want to follow along or take a look in your free time, there's some good stuff. The uh, The big thing I kind of want to talk about here, though, is um, when, when he talks about uh, season three of the show. So the interviewer uh, kind of asks Lindelof, you know, why, why are you doing these interviews? You didn't do any in season one, and, um, you know, this, this season you're really doing a lot more. And uh, Lindelof, and I'm paraphrasing here because I don't want to read his entire response on the podcast, but I'm paraphrasing when I say uh, Lindelof basically says that he's fighting for the life of the show and that he's, uh, he's you know, going on essentially a hype tour, a promotional tour for, uh, for season two to talk about it, to, um, to get people talking about it and to kind of drum up the buzz um, because he wants a season three. And I think that's a big takeaway uh, for this for this interview is that everyone involved wants a season three. This isn't a case where the the writers don't have content. Uh, he said before that they have content for season three. Um, this is a case where they want it, and we're hoping that HBO can give it to them. 
Yeah, I think so too. Um, I think that uh, if if HBO, you know, I don't know. It, it's it's hard to speculate because I, I think that whatever we're gonna say um, isn't gonna have as as the, the benefit of of knowing what conversations are happening and um, specifically because. Damon said that the conversation hasn't happened yet. You know, like uh, they're they're all on vacation now after wrapping season two, and um, he said that that uh, around Christmas or, or before the holidays that there's going to be a meeting, um, and that he'd like to know more by the end of the year, maybe. But um, I, I definitely think they uh, they can do another great season of television or two seasons even, um, and. I don't know. It, it, obviously, it's up to HBO, but uh, it's possible that the, you know, I know we haven't put a whole lot of stock in, in ratings this season, but you never know. That could be an important distinction. Um, maybe not so much what the actual number was, but just the fact that it went up for the finale could be of, of significance. Uh, I know the ratings did go up by a couple hundred thousand views and uh, they did pretty well in the demo. So that could be a factor as well. Agreed. And uh, there's just one other thing I want to talk about in this interview. Um, the interviewer asks Lindelof about um, the <clears throat> the level of ambiguity in the show, in which uh, things are magical, in which things are not magical, and um, you know how how grounded is the show in reality. And Lindelof says a good deal on this subject, but there's one kind of crucial point I'm going to pull out and cherry pick here that I really like. It's a great quote. He says, it's interesting to me that the people that watch The Leftovers, excuse me, he says, it's interesting to me that people watch The Leftovers and they don't want it to be magical. They want the departure to have happened and everything else to be entirely grounded in reality. I embrace that presentation, but I also feel like the rule we've set for ourselves as storytellers more or less is that if 2% of the world's population disappeared, 2% of the show should be magical and the other 98% should be grounded. Um, I think that's... I. I love that he kind of brings this point up because I know often on this podcast we we kind of allow this show to exist in maybe until the, the tail half of the season. But for the most part, we've allowed this show to exist in a world that's grounded in reality. And we would try to find ways to kind of write off what, what was happening with Patty, um, with, uh, with Virgil, with the, the lake. Uh, you know, we'd try to find kind of scientific explanations for this. Um, I think it wasn't until later on in the season, right? Um, mm-hmm. Episode eight or episode seven, um, inter- episode eight, international assassin, probably being the huge turning point where we kind of acknowledge that you know the the show does exist in some extent in the realm of the supernatural, right? Right. I, I think that yeah, I think his his analogy makes sense, or not his analogy, but his his explanation makes sense, and his observation is true as well. I mean, we've talked about this before. I notice all the time online people who are seem very eager to make a um an agnostic case for the show or rather that they want to be agnostic about the events of the show which is fine uh but i think that you can't have the premise of the show be that two percent of the world's population just vanishes um and that Nothing else after that can be explained in in any other way but the uh, preconceptions we already have, the preconceptions we had pre-departure. I, I, I don't think that's a, a fair way 
to look at the show. And if you did look at the show that way, it would say something, I think, negative about the creators of the show, something inherently uh, manipulative or deceptive, that the show is built on the premise that this bizarre supernatural event happened, and then everything after that is just a shell game. I think that's actually really cynical. Yeah, it's um, agreed. But I I think at the same time, it makes um, it makes the show fun to talk about. And it, I love the ambiguity that he's that they've exercised. I also love some of the answers they've given us. Yeah, um, I think the whole setup is is just great for podcasts like this, or just you know water cooler conversation. You know, talking to other people who watch the show, etc. Um, but anyways, I don't want to spend too much time on that. I kind of want to get into the uh, the actual episode itself. So let's let's start off where the show actually starts off, and that's uh, Evie and her friends. So. The start of the show, I love how it circles back around and we get kind of a callback to episodes one and two and that kind of reliving that same day over and over. And right. they give us that one more time, um, this time from Evie and her friend's point of view as they are um, leaving leaving the Murphy's house and uh, driving away to, uh, to join the GR, essentially. And it's safe to assume that they have been members of the Remnant for some time prior to the beginning of the season. Agreed. Yeah, that seems to be the case. Um, Which is, brings they, up an interesting point that this is the first time we've ever seen, uh, with the exception of maybe the people on Meg's farm, um, that we've seen uh, undercover remnant spies, basically. I mean, that's what they yeah. were. They were pretending to not be with the remnant, but when they were alone, they went back to being silent. Yeah, this is the first time we've seen that, and um, that was that was really cool. I liked it. It was I thought the scene where as they kind of drive out of distance of the house, and then they turn the music off, and it's just straight silence. I really liked that scene. I thought that was particularly powerful. Yeah. Um, and I really enjoyed that. Um, so we get to see that they staged the disappearance. They did a great job of staging the disappearance. Kind of took all the necessary. Um, precautionary steps. Uh, let's talk a little bit though about motive for joining the GR. So uh, what do you think the motive is for Evie and her friends joining the GR? Uh, I, I think it's probably, it's all rooted in, in what is most people's motive for joining the remnant, which is that the world has changed in a way that is irreconcilable. And so the concept of reconciliation is not just pointless, but it's harmful. So in the case of Evie and her friends, they're, the people of Jarden obviously believe, um, well, we know what they believe about themselves and about the town. So the Certainly. concept of the remnant is they, they ha- almost have a, uh, an immunity to it. And I think the reason Evie and her friends joined, um, and I think that, that based on some contextual clues in the, in the episode, um, Evie's obviously the ringleader here. So the, the two other girls yeah. seem very uncertain and unsure about this when it was actually going down. Um, but that could also be a lot of, of, of pent-up um, uh, resentment that Evie clearly has for her, her parents. But I think that their sort of thesis that we get a taste of in, um, uh, in last week's episode with the flashback to Meg... Uh, is that they don't believe that that Jarden is in any way special or immune. 
they, they consider themselves to not be a part of this. And so, um, and th- they're, you know, as odd as it is, I think their perspective makes way more sense that if 2% of the world's population disappeared, you don't get to pretend that didn't happen or act like it wasn't important or it doesn't affect you just because your town didn't have anyone that departed. That's still a world changing event that should influence your life. And so I think that it comes from the frustration of not just the town feeling special and privileged in a way that they probably believe is not earned or deserved, but also that, you know, that this is something that does affect them. Even if their neighbor didn't depart, this, this, the world has changed. And if they pretend like it hasn't, um, they are doing some sort of inherent harm to themselves or others. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I also think, at least from Evie's point of view, some of this has to tie back to the Bass story that uh, that Michael talks about um, in in church after uh, he goes up and tells the story mm. about, um, you guys all know the story, about how Evie wanted to, uh, wanted to see Noah's Ark or something to that extent. And uh, really the truth was that uh, he turned on the bath to uh, so that he couldn't hear her crying anymore um, because they all didn't know where their father, John, had gone. Right. Um, so there, there really seems to be, and, and Kevin kind of points this out when him and John have a conversation later. He says maybe she just didn't love you as much as you thought, um, yeah. but there really seems to be some serious family issues. They've, they've kind of hinted at this all season long, and um, Evie joining the GR seems to be kind of the, the pinnacle of, uh, of these issues, you know, kind of manifesting itself in her actions there. It was probably the most brutally delivered line of the season um, when he says maybe she didn't and then pauses, love you. Uh, it hurt me a little bit. I mean, that was, that was rough. Um, yeah, I mean, do you think it's safe to think that while John was in prison, maybe Erica was really neglectful of Evie and, and Michael. And the reason they didn't know where their dad went is because Erica pretended like it wasn't happening. And that I, this is, they, Evie looks at the departure and thinks, well, this is just one more thing that everyone's pretending didn't happen. Agreed. I think that's a clear undertone of the story, actually, uh, because what parent would leave their two kids alone in the bath, right? Oh, it yeah. It seems like a, a yeah. bad idea, um, but yet somehow it happens. Um, so... Cool. Let's um let's move on to uh, Michael and Kevin actually. So we get to see Kevin finally crawl out of the grave, mm-hmm. and um, Michael is there um, either finishing up burying him or just I don't know burying Virgil. Maybe he's there still, and he sees him. And Michael drops a really key line I think in that uh, he didn't expect Kevin to actually come back to life. Right? Uh, he knew that Virgil was going to be dead. And he knew that Mike, that uh, Kevin was going to be dead. Uh, but Virgil had told him to bury them both and had given him no further instructions, right? So I'm not sure what to take to make out of this. It's it's strange. Uh, I kind of got a uh, the vibe that this is just more part of the, you know, what what Virgil probably thought was the spellcraft of it all. Okay. You know, it's, it's you have to die, but you also have to be buried and you might have to be buried outside Jarden or in Jarden or something. I mean, I feel like it, it's the Virgil telling Michael to bury him probably has something to do with um, what Virgil thought he was doing um, and that, that being buried was some kind of 
precondition to actually being able to go to the other side and come back or something like that. Um, but uh, I, I don't have a, you know, I, as far as whether or not Michael thought he would come back, I don't know. I feel like Michael should have thought he was going to come back. He's been through this once before with, uh, you know, uh, the guy in the tower. Um, so do we know that? Um, because Michael seemed pretty surprised, right? When Kevin came out of the ground, he, he actually says, holy shit. Um, like he's shocked that Kevin's crawling out of the grave. So do we know that Michael was there for the guy in the tower? Um, I would or was say that maybe just Virgil solo. I, I would say you could go either way because um, it's possible. But I, I also think that if at some point in the past I saw some guy raised from the dead and then a couple of years later I saw somebody raised from the dead, I'd probably still say, holy shit. Like I'd probably, it'd probably still be a little bit jarring. That's true. If I saw it twice. It's, I mean, like less jarring. Cause like I've already seen a couple, you know, like one dude come back, but like, you know, so. Uh, it's like watching fight club for the second time. <laughs> right. It's still good, but it's like, you know, I, you know, I, I knew it was coming this time. Um, I, I will say, I think uh, for anybody who is trying to make the case that this is all, you know, this is there's nothing supernatural happening. I would say your job just got a lot harder with one of the lines there when, when he asks um, uh, Michael how long he's been uh, buried. And what was it five hours? Or? It was a decent amount of time. Um, I don't remember the exact amount I of time. I should have written it down. It was a we number of hours. It was longer long time. than the amount of time you can be unconscious and not have irreparable brain damage. Um or be underground for um, be buried. So um, I, unless Michael was, you know, lying to him, which I, I can't conceive of, uh, I think this is uh, this just supports the general theory that Kevin can't die. Apparently, um, yeah. Let's uh, or maybe let's he talk can, but that. someone really doesn't want him to. Yeah, let's let's talk about that because so we've we've heard kind of rumblings throughout the season of the man in Australia. Who um, who can't die, and now it, it seems that Kevin has this um, this same kind of uh, phenomenon occurring in his life, and that he uh, he can't seem to die. So he uh, he gets shot in the uh, in the kennel by John, and uh, takes one right in what looks like slightly below the heart, and uh, goes back to goes back to the hotel again. Uh, what were you excited when you saw the hotel again, or where? Or was this kind of uh, old hat for you? Him getting shot, I, I wasn't, I mean, that was kind of forecasted with, we know, you know, uh, that that um, uh, John has shot before and that, you know, we. it was also kind of expected that Kevin wouldn't die because that's kind of John's thing. He shoots people and they don't die. Um, but I loved, I loved the, uh, the karaoke scene in particular. Yeah, so um, I know you have a lot to say about that, but in um, as far as the scene in the kennel goes, I really liked that. Um, I like the the notion that now that Patty's gone, um, the memories that she may have been hoarding, if I can phrase it that way, have started to return to Kevin. So this is why he knows this stuff and he can tell John. But I love that scene. So, uh, but and I know you have thoughts about the the karaoke scene. So let's get to that. Well, and I want to talk about the kennel um, and the memories coming back to him. So 
he tells he tells Sean that the girls didn't depart and that he saw them leave. Um, you know, PS why maybe they didn't love you, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you think that now that Patty is gone, Kevin can now kind of remember everything that's that's been occurring while he was sleepwalking. That's kind of your take on the whole thing. Yeah, I think that um, what whatever, um, and I forget which episode I laid this out in, but I, I dropped this like really uh, long monologue about what I think is going on with Kevin. And I think that um, what, whenever this force or presence or whatever was controlling Kevin, um, that somehow that part of his subconscious was walled off from him. And if that force is indeed Patty and that Patty is gone now, then um, I guess it would logically follow that wall has started to crumble. So those memories are coming back to him and he's remembering okay. these things. Yeah, I like that. Um, I had tossed around the idea that the man on the bridge from uh, episode eight, International Assassin, had told him that the girls hadn't departed, right? Because if you recall in that episode, um, the man on the bridge who we later see in the karaoke scene um, in this episode whispers something to Kevin, but we don't know what he says and we don't get any sort of clarification throughout this episode what it was. So I had tossed around the idea that maybe he had told Kevin that the uh, that the girls hadn't departed. Um, Kevin obviously has this information in his subconscious because we see him clearly look at the girls. So um, he, either way, he somehow he somehow remembered that they did not depart. Right. So let's uh, let's go over to the karaoke scene and um, a couple things here. I for me personally, I think this was my favorite scene this season um, and maybe my favorite scene. Um, for the show overall in the two seasons that's been on the air. Um, if not my favorite, then it's a top five. I just, I absolutely loved it. I thought uh, the acting was top notch. The singing, not so much actually, but obviously intentional. Right. Um, just a very, very powerful scene. Um, I, I loved it. What was your, uh, what was your takeaway? What'd you think? I thought it was fantastic. Uh, I love the song. Um, I, I love that we go back to, to the hotel. Uh, and I love how, um, unbelievably frustrated Kevin is with, with this. Um, yeah. And uh, has this ha- sort of like meta reaction, like the viewer, like I can't believe we're going back here. And, and um, it's, I thought that was really good. I liked that, that he picked a different outfit this time. Um, and uh, I don't know what to make of the actual call he gets about a, being attacked downstairs um whether that was fake or why someone would use that specifically to get him to come downstairs instead of just asking him to come um so that's interesting uh but as far as kevin kevin singing which um i I feel like the whole scene was sort of a uh an ultimate refusal of the remnant um and and that we've seen Kevin flirt with it and that, that sort of ideology the past season. And I feel like uh, not just the singing or the uh, particular song or, uh, but just the, the idea of, of him. Uh, but in addition to those things, rather um, singing as opposition to silence, I thought was, was a really nice metaphor uh, in that way that, that, 
he does want to be home. He does want his family. He sort of rejects the thesis that Patty lays out in International Assassin um, about families not being a, a concept that's important anymore. And I thought that was a really good way to complete that arc. Yeah, agreed. Um, I definitely agree with you. Yeah, it, it really seemed like it was it was his way of kind of freeing himself um, from from the GR, which maybe is something that's troubled him now for uh, at least a season, if not more. Um, yeah, I thought it was really powerful. It was a spectacular scene. I, I just loved everything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what to make of why, you know, he chose the police officer uniform. He gets the call that he needs to come downstairs and um, that someone's being attacked or that the cop's being attacked and he runs down and none of that is actually happening. <laughs> and um, and right. instead there's, there's this karaoke bar where, you know, he just happily kind of sings sings himself back home. I, it makes me wonder if the uniform is only maybe um, kind of a framework for what he has to do. So, you know, in the end he was going to have to sing no matter what, but maybe how he, what gets him down there to the karaoke bar, maybe that is different um, based on what outfit he chooses. But the end, the end result is possibly the same, right? So well, I think it also maybe, ties into his opposition to the remnant and him finally making that choice. Because in the first season, that is what he wears when he is in this constant war with the GR. And I think that's him choosing to, it's it's a way of, of fighting back against that. I mean, he was never more at odds with the Remnant than when he was the sheriff. That's a great point. Yeah, I, I didn't consider that, but that is, that's a really good point. Um, so it uh, seems like there's a lot of reasoning uh, behind him choosing the uh, police officer uh, uniform, but... Uh, nevertheless, a, a great scene. Um, let's uh, so that that takes him out of out of uh, the hotel, and he wakes up and um, he wakes up in the uh, the kennel where he's laying on the laying on the floor, soaked in a pile of his own blood. And there are just a couple things I want to talk about here. So we see that uh, that Kevin's dog actually waits for him, uh, which what a what a touching moment for man's best friend, right? Yeah, I love that. That was that was great, and I went out and bought five dogs. Um, so then we see him get up, and he's you know he's obviously lost a lot of blood, and this kind of uh, supports the idea that maybe Kevin is unkillable, um, unable to be killed, and uh, he goes outside, and it's interesting um, as as he as he goes outside, the dog is with him, but once they kind of hit Jarden. Uh, the dog actually runs off. And um, the first thing that came to my mind when the dog runs away was season one, right? With kind of the the rabid pack of dogs running the town of Mapleton and just kind of doing whatever they want and um, not being, you know, not being under control. Um, it, it made me kind of draw uh, some conclusions, actually, that I wanted to kind of run by you. So it's, I like the idea that maybe... Uh, Maybe Jarden was special, right? Maybe it previously was somewhere special and something great really had happened. I mean, we see that, and we'll get to this later, but we see that Mary talks again. Um, we see that people are able to be resurrected from the dead here. Uh, we see all right. these great things happening. And maybe now that the GR has kind of infiltrated it and uh, poisoned it, so to speak, maybe it's not special anymore. Maybe it's now subject to the laws of the real world where the dogs are kind of running wild and crazed. Um, what do you think about that? 
I actually like the idea. Um, I, I like the idea that e- either that or, I mean, because the dog's never been in Jarden before. So there's a possibility it doesn't want to go in Jarden. True. Okay. Um, but I mean, the idea of, you know, from the first episode of the Access Monday, um, you know, whether or not something like that can be tainted or corrupted is definitely an interesting idea. I, I don't, uh, I, I'm not totally sure though. Um, I, I think it'd be really interesting if, if they give a, if there is another season, if we get more information about how animals are, uh, are reacting to this. Agreed, because there definitely does seem to be, um, they're dropping us a lot of hits at the very least, right? Uh, I, I think it's, it reminds me actually of the, um, um, in the first season, I think it's the twins that say it, which, you know, huge bummer that they weren't in this season, by the way. <laughs> I know, I know a lot of Reddit wanted them back. Oh, um, they were great. They were they, amazing. They were okay. Um, take it or leave it over here. Uh, but they mention in uh, in the first season when they're talking about the dogs, I believe the dog that Kevin had in the back of his car, and uh, they remark that the dog, like that this is going to happen to all of us, um, that eventually we'll all just go wild, um, but that it happened to the dogs first. Yeah. Um, talking about after departure, basically saying it was something like you don't see something like that and just you know carry on essentially. And um, yeah, yeah. I thought it was interesting. I thought about that scene, and then immediately the next thing we see is all of the people from the tent city who have invaded Jarden, basically. And they are basically doing and acting exactly like he said the dogs were, essentially, saying how everyone will just, you know, snap eventually and, you know, just go wild. And obviously they're having this, uh, you know, crazy party, which isn't all that strange, but it's happening while yeah. they're burning down and taking over this town that's supposed to be sacred. So um, I thought that was an interesting parallel that I think we're seeing some, some people who have just snapped finally. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great callback. I, I did not remember that line from season one, but it definitely seems to be relevant at the end of this episode and that, yeah, we see people just kind of riding in the streets going crazy. It's just like a, it's a full-blown riot, it seems like. I love the tower guy. Um, I love we got a, a, a shot of tower guy with his, like, kids these days face. That was awesome. Like, he's yeah. just still up there. <laughs> yeah, I love how yeah. he's still up there. Um, I hope if we get a season three, we get a little bit more information on yeah. why he's on that tower and maybe his connection to the man in Australia who he wrote the letter to at the start. Uh, none of that was Hashtag really touched more tower on guy. the finale. Hashtag more tower guy. Tweet it. Um Let's talk a little bit about uh, the scene before everyone kind of invades invades Jarden. Um, so as as the uh, clock is counting down, and Meg has driven her uh, non explosive filled trailer onto the bridge, and we've got Evie and her friends standing out there Sorry, smoking. Um, yeah. Um, what? So that scene that was a great scene. I I especially loved. Um, when or what was especially kind of heartbreaking to me is when Erica gets through the barricade and she gets up to Evie and she just hugs her and she starts screaming and talking to her and then she starts trying to sign to mm-hmm. her kind of desperately, which is, you know, kind of a way they would communicate 
it seems like when they didn't want uh, John to be under, be able to right. hear what they were saying. Um, but just trying to kind of focus in on those things they had in common. And she just kind of stands there almost dead to the world. What what a crushing scene. I don't really have a lot more to say of it besides the fact that it was just, just crushing yeah. to watch. Um, very well done and just very yeah, and intense. The, the fact that it, it refers or it references um, uh, Erica's inability to hear uh, physically, you know, her impairment, but it also references her yeah. inability to hear Calling back to earlier in the the episode, her daughter crying in the bathtub and she can't hear it. And it's all sort of come full circle with now Evie refusing to hear her mom's suffering. Um, I mean, it's it's an unbelievably biting scene and they managed to show it from Evie's perspective and from Erica's perspective and from the crowd's perspective and, and even sort of allow us to, to get in there and, and feel like we're a, we're a part of this really painful and profound exchange between the two of them. Um, yeah. A fantastic performance. I, I loved every bit of that scene. Yeah, I, I did as well. I do have a, a small complaint though. So the timer counts down and hits zero. And of course there's no, there's no C4 inside the trailer, which I, I thought was where the writers maybe just mm-hmm. trolling us a little bit with the idea that there could right. be C4 at all. It seems like all. a make thing to do. Um, honestly, it really does. It does. Right. It, and it kind of calls back to some of the earlier things she had done where she almost lights Tommy on fire. Uh, she drops the fake grenade in the bus full of kids. So I guess it makes it, sense you know, then that the, like, it wouldn't actually be C4 because it seems like everything she's done before has been an almost crazy, but she didn't actually do the thing. Yeah. It's like the right. threat of violence um, without the unless actual you're in the violence. Group, then they just stone uh, you. What I didn't. Yeah. Unless. Uh, yeah. But um, what I didn't care for actually was the idea that I, I didn't quite understand, you know, what, what the necessity was behind having Evie and her friends. I, I understand that, it was a way to kind of break the people down and maybe maybe take them out of their element. But, it, you know, it seemed like she had all these people kind of waiting outside in, in the park and they could have easily stormed the gates at any point, yet they kind of wait for this one moment. Um, I didn't particularly care for that. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I think we can all safely assume it was Meg who approached the girls, right? And not the other way around. Yeah, it, you know, I could see it either way. Um, we obviously know that they had some sort of connection right. earlier on when we see Meg go to Jordan originally after the departure. Um, I can see it going uh, both ways, honestly, because it, it's clear that Evie has some real issues that she's still trying to work out. So I could see her approaching Meg as well. Yeah, it's possible. My only thing would be the logistics of how she would get in touch with her or how she would know that she's a part of this this organization. Um and express a desire Good to point. change yeah. or, or to join. Um, but I, I don't think it's so much that, that the girls were sort of a, a necessary part of this plan. Um, I think that uh, it was, it may have just been a bonus, right? I mean, she may have been planning to do something like this for some time on October 14th, but um being able to to make this plan with the girls and and cause a lot of dysfunction and hysteria and um, pain by having them leave. Um, what I mean to say is the girls joining the GR 
doesn't necessarily have to be a plot against Jarden. The two could have coincided. Like, hey, we want to join. Oh, that's funny, because I actually have a plan for, you know, some shit I was going to do to your town, so you can be a part of it now. And that may be me sort of manipulating it to fit into that, but um, I, I agree with you. It doesn't seem that the plan hinged on them being able to do that. Agreed. Um, the only thing I could possibly come up with to support the idea that the girls had to be part of the plan is the idea that John is kind of, um, he's at least, you know, kind of security to an extent for Jarden, right? And that he, he manages a lot of uh, kind of the self-policing in there. So maybe having him kind of um, sidelined for this invasion made things a little bit easier. Uh, that's the only way I can justify it kind of internally in point. my head is that maybe maybe having him distracted by the fact that his daughter has gone off, joined the GR, and is now standing on a bridge smoking um, kind of sidelined him for for the actual kind of bum rush of the town itself. But I'm, I'm mostly in agreement that they don't seem like a necessary part of the plan. Uh, it, I agree. It seems like an added bonus and that really she could have taken the, uh, the town at any time. Right. Yeah. It seemed like, uh, most of the little tent city was, uh, embedded GR. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's talk about Mary. Actually um, one thing really quick while we're still on the bridge. Um, yeah. Do you remember back in the first season when, um, uh, Tom finds the other group, uh, the the other you know guy and and Asian girl who's pregnant, and she mentions yeah. that um, um, it was either the other girl or it was um, the girl that he was protecting, who I can't remember her name at the moment, but uh, referring to Wayne's baby, uh, said something about the baby being a bridge. Yeah, I do remember that. I, I think Wayne even referred to it as a bridge a couple times. I know that important and special, but I can't remember whether it was him or one of the girls who said he's the bridge. Obviously getting the gender wrong. Um, but uh, I just find it interesting. There's There's been, you know, a few things we've talked about this season with, um, with Lily. Um, but I, I did think it was, uh, we got another sort of callback to that with her actually literally being left on the bridge. Um, yeah, that, oh, that's a good point. I didn't even think about that. And that was another just kind of nail. Yeah, there's scene. also, um, uh, somebody on, on, uh, on Reddit, um, uh, username, uh, it's Brian Duh 108, uh, mentions a, another podcast, the Jay and Jack leftovers podcast, um, and a call that they received. Uh, where someone mentions that particular scene, but they actually point out something else that I think is interesting because you're about to talk about Mary um, and that it was when the earthquake happens uh, and Mary is being shielded by Nora and Nora is also holding Lily that apparently Lily comes into contact with Mary for the first time and that this is right when Mary regains consciousness. So the theory was that that Lily is a a bridge. But between dimensions, I'm guessing between you know where, but that that sort of implies that you know Mary was in another dimension, and I don't know if that's true. And we saw her at the hotel too, and I don't know. I don't know what to make of the whole Mary thing. I'm I'm totally perplexed by it. Interesting. Um, yeah, as as far as from a logistics standpoint, I I don't know what to make of Mary kind of magically springing back to life. Um, 
I want to say that I loved pretty much every scene she was in, not for her acting, but for the acting around her. Um, so Nora Carrie Coons uh, does a spectacular job when Mary starts to speak again. Just the the kind of excitement, shock, and just kind of you know, just the look on her face just kind of yeah, wrenched my great. insides. And, she did um, such a wonderful job, and I loved it. Uh, and the only look I loved more than that was when she gets Mary out to see Matt and uh, she, Mary just says, Hey Matt. And he just smiles and, and it's, you know, he conveys so many things with the smile, but just, it's like he knew, you know, he knew that yeah. this was going to happen and he had just been kind of waiting for it. And it was just like, Oh yeah. Okay. Now right. it's happened. Like when you order something um, off Amazon and it's it was, late and so you forget about it, but then it shows up one day and you're like, oh yeah. And then you're really happy about it because you like getting stuff from Amazon. It's exactly like that. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe a little bit like that, maybe a little bit more excitement, but, uh, but yeah, I, I love that. And I love just kind of, I love seeing Mary finally talk, um, in the show, you know, it'd been a long time kind of coming and it, it was great to see her. Uh, come back. I also love how Matt is just gung ho about getting back in Jarden, and he's like, "Are you with me?" And Mary, you know, just kind of back into this whole new world. She doesn't really ask many questions. She's like, "Yeah, right. I'm with you." I I love that they kind of you know they show how trusting she is in him, and that kind of strength that their relationship has. That was a I would a great also thing like to see. Very honestly, sincerely thank the writers for denying us the ambiguity of. Uh, Mary's pregnancy. I am actually very appreciative of that. Uh, I'm glad that that did not remain a mystery. Um, that I think that 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 probably would have been something that bothered me for some time, based on what I understood about Matt's character and how much I liked him as a character. And um, if if we ended this season with it still up in the air as to whether or not Matt raped his wife, um, I. I yeah, probably would have been really unhappy about it, and I'm very glad that they it took at least a brief moment to address that. And um, yes, so just a big thank you. I'm very pleased. Agreed. I love that they addressed that. I love that they didn't address uh, the side of the road um, where Mac gets hit in the head with the uh, with the wrench, and she speaks. Then um, I love that that was kind of that wasn't mentioned. So that still could have been, you know. Uh, yeah. in his head after getting struck in the head. Um, that was that was spectacular. Uh, why don't we move into the final scene? And you had some really great thoughts on this scene, so I want you to kind of uh, tell us tell us what you thought there because I really liked what you had to say yeah, about this I'll, scene. I'll do my best. I never write this stuff down. I just usually call you and um, just start talking, and then I hope to remember uh, at least most of it or, or when we do the podcast and I can <laughs> elaborate, but... Um, that is how it works. Yeah, so I, I think throughout, since the beginning of season two, we've sort of all understood that things happen when earthquakes happen. Um, and yep. we get that from the very, the first 30 seconds of the show, that an earthquake happens and this really, really tragic thing happens to this woman. She loses her entire tribe and then she has to, to carry on uh, alone with her child and uh, eventually dies child was taken in by someone else and I thought that this final scene was a really beautiful answer to that scene um, not 
so much to do with the plot. Um, I don't think that there's this idea that because this thing happened here a while back, that now the town is special, and so these things will happen. Um, I think it's probably the other way around. But I loved that we see Kevin get to his house um, and have this really darling exchange with John where he just says, like, yeah, you just come to my place. Like, I thought I loved that line. Yeah, um, spectacular. But another earthquake happens. Uh, he collapses, and in a, an almost mirror image of the first scene of the season, he looks up at his home where his family and his loved ones are, and it's still there, and they're safe, and they're okay, and he goes inside, and it, it was... Um, I thought it was a beautiful answer to the first scene, uh, metaphorically, and bringing the season... Uh, full circle. Yeah, agreed. Um, that was a, a, it was a spectacular scene. It was really, it was really touching and kind of heartfelt. And I love, I love the comparison you made with the, the kind of start of season two where she looks up after the earthquake and her tribe has been crushed in rocks. And, um, you know, at the end of, of this season, we see him look up at his house and it's standing right there and all of his family and loved ones are inside it. That was spectacular. The The final thing that I thought was, was really perfect about this scene, I mean, we get this very picturesque panning shot around the room and everybody's there and Tommy's back and um, he's wearing white, which is a little alarming, but he's back at least. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Donna's up and about. Her name's not Donna. Damn it. Janelle Maloney, uh, Mary, is back. Um, yeah. In case anybody hasn't seen the West Wing, just go watch the West Wing. Um, <laughs> and, but at the end, I feel like there's this really beautiful circularity to Kevin's story when Nora says you're back. Um, I thought there was just something really, really perfect about that. That that you know, throughout these these two seasons, um, we've seen this unbelievable journey for for Kevin that um, has gone back and forth so many times and there's been so much progress and so much regress and um i feel like in metaphorically and uh, with with his ordeal with patty and and physically with uh dying twice in like 24 hours yeah um he has just been through this 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 gauntlet this you know this um this this trial of of greek poetry proportions and she says you're back I, I did. I really love that line um, as well. And I just I love just the idea that, you know, over the course of these two seasons, um, Kevin has assembled kind of a, we've seen his family kind of grow and we've seen it shrink. And I love kind of at the end of season two, um, how we just see them all in one place together and kind of embracing him and kind of embracing each other uh, that I don't know why, but that that just kind of hit home with me. I really love that. Yeah, I, I think that. This, I think this season has made the show transcend uh, what it was in the first season. Um, I think that a lot of people came away from the first season looking at the show as uh, largely a curiosity. Um, and I think what they've done now is, is something something really profound uh, that uh, I'm, I'm really very, very pleased to be talking about and, and watching and, and getting to live right now uh and in the time of what i think is a show that's going to be discussed for 
decades. I think that this is going to be something that, that people um, write about and, and talk about and, and um, continue to enjoy for a really, really long time. I think they've, they've done something really, really special, really profound with this season and with the show in general. Agreed. And one thing I do want to say, if if it ends here and we don't see a season three, which I think is unlikely, um, but let's say it does happen like that, I think they've they've ended it close to perfectly. I, I feel like it stands alone. Uh, these two seasons, I they work well together. And I feel like they closed up, um, you know, all of the major kind of thread points. And the ones that weren't closed up, you know, we have enough information to kind of speculate about and things like that. So if it does end here, I'm really happy uh, with how it ended. I Definitely one of my favorite shows of the year, um, if not the favorite. So it was a great season. I really liked it. I, I would say this is definitely my favorite of the year. I, I'm honestly, this yeah. this season of television, um, I know there's a there's a couple of... Um, of, uh, of critics from the, um, I forget what website, I think it was Hollywood Reporter, um, yeah. or it might have been might have been Bald Move, I can't remember, but they said it was the best season of television they've ever seen. Yeah, um, it's it's definitely up there for me. I, I agree. It's in my top three, probably, I think. Even for sure. If, even if we went back and watched the series, or the season from the beginning, and did a new episode for each episode, I feel like we could still cover more ground. There were so many details and things that were just so many little flourishes that just that made this season into a masterpiece that uh, I feel like there's even if we don't get another season um, there's still a lot here left to explore yeah um, definitely I, I agree I, I feel like we finish every episode and there's always more we want to talk about but um, right. you know I, we could talk to we're probably blue in the face about the show it's just uh, you, you know I like to leave uh, a little bit out there so that the viewers or the listeners have uh, have something to think about, and we don't want to give you a two-hour podcast just because uh, that's not in anyone's best interest. Exactly. Um, speaking of that, we are uh, kind of running up against it here. So uh, a couple things. Uh, this is going to be our last, I guess, regularly regularly uh, recorded weekly episode as the show is now over. Um, but that's not going to be all. Uh, so we have a couple things in store for you. Uh, I think we're we've been talking about doing a uh, a guilty remnant episode. Yep. Um, I, I think sometime maybe mid January, early January, in that time frame, um, we're gonna try to assemble a podcast just about the GR and just talk about everything we know about it, um, kind of free form, and just kind of get that out there. It seemed like something fun to do. And yeah, we want to. I, I kind of wanted to just put together. I mean, for people who are watching the show or just aren't getting the GR or not understanding them fully or um, I feel like I want to, we want to put together something sort of encyclopedic um, where we just sort of go point by point and talk about um, all the things that they've done and, and you know speculation on their um, their origin story and, and uh, you know their dogmas their practices all of that stuff so that that will be coming um, uh, early next year we're gonna try to get it done in January but um, you know obviously it depends on on our schedules so. And one other thing I wanted to kind of toss out there. Um, I think we'd be open to doing a mailbag episode if we got enough mail for it. So um, if if you out there uh, want to write into us, um, rapturecastmail at gmail.com, um, do that. 
And yeah, uh, we'd love we to do will, a mailbag episode. That'd be fun. Yeah, and if we get enough, if we get enough, we'll do an entire episode uh, devoted to just the mailbag. If we only get a few, we'll mix it in uh, with our GR episode as well. Or just so read it very right slowly. In, or read it very slowly over the course of an entire hour. Uh, another option <laughs> for sure. But uh, go ahead and yeah, write in anything you want to discuss about the entire season two. You can even you know throw in season one if you'd like. Um, just anything about the show, and uh, we'll we'll read it on air, and then uh, and then talk about it and whatnot. And that's uh, that's RaptureCastMail at gmail.com. and uh, also Rapture underscore Cast on Twitter. You can tweet us there, and uh, we'll favorite that and make a copy of it so that uh, when we go to record that episode, we can read your opinion on the air and talk about it and explain uh, you know why it's right or wrong. Yeah, so it's been a great year, everybody. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. This has been Definitely. our first uh, uh, foray into podcasting, and um, as some of you have noticed, um, you know the the audio had a bit of a bumpy start, and hopefully improved in your opinion as the year went on. But uh, you know, we'd love to come back and do this again uh, next year with the leftovers or with uh, a, another show. If the leftovers doesn't continue, we'll see. But um, we really appreciate the support and everybody who subscribed and um, you know shared our show or uploaded us on Reddit or sent us in mail or anything like that. We uh, we it's been a blast. Yeah, no, it's it's been a great time, and I think me and you both had a really fun time doing this. And uh, I don't think we're quite done yet, but we are done for uh, twenty fifteen. At the very least, I don't think uh, we'll be recording anything else for the rest of this year, but uh, we'll be back early 2016 uh, with some, uh, you know, some GR and uh, hopefully some mail to uh, to talk about the leftovers. And I'm, I'm sure by then we'll know if it's gotten renewed or not. So that that could be maybe another another conversational point we can uh, bring to you in early 2016. Six seasons in a movie. Six seasons and a movie. Seems reasonable. All right. All right, guys, until uh, until next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>